Copy this. Big Thinking Local Climate Action. Hi, I'm Rick Casali, co-founder of climate action charity Carbon Copy. Hello, Rick. I'm Amanda Carpenter and I'm the host of Planet Pod. And today I'm co-hosting this podcast with you, which is actually the first in a series, isn't it, Rick? It is. And it's really good to see you again because last time we met, it was a little crazy. Um, I just finished uh, walking 500 miles from London to Glasgow for COP26 and quite literally having finished you were there at the finish point and it's like okay i'm doing a podcast about the, the global climate summit why don't you join me yeah uh, i still have my walking boots on i remember he did he staggered in literally staggered in breathless to the studio and was fantastic and it was a great start i think to what was the phenomenal couple of weeks in glasgow mm. and um you had, had just done the most amazing kind of you know marathon walk i must say staying in glasgow for two weeks felt like a bit of a marathon as well but but it, yeah. it was fabulous to have that, for me, to have that kickoff in that podcast series with somebody who'd come up through the country and met so many people who were putting into action some of the ambitions that, that we have around climate change and preventing the climate crisis. And the sorts of people you had met on your journey are utterly awe-inspiring. And uh, I think that's kind of why we're here today, isn't it, really, to talk about those projects and the work that Carbon Copy does. and showcase some of those amazing folk that you've been talking to. Yeah, it's exactly right. Um, And in fact, in terms of our guests today, literally they were on the route. So I met up with Jenny, who we'll introduce you to in a second, and she spoke all about what they are doing, which is so phenomenal. That's why I said, you know, we've got to actually share this story a little bit more widely. Uh, We also actually went out and visited the site and it was super windy. I remember that it was really the weather had turned, but I was blown away, uh, figuratively, not literally, by the ambition of this project and how people have come together. And so I thought, you know, we need to do something about this um, and, you know, share their story more widely. And I'm not an expert about this, but I gather that what has been happening at Langham Estate and the project that came out of that is an example of something called a a local climate commons, is that right? I don't know much about climate commons. Can you share with listeners what they are, Rick? Yeah, so um, there's a really interesting report that came out uh, last year by the think tank, the uh, IPPR, the uh, Institute for Public Policy Research. And that report is called the Climate Commons. And essentially it's about um, the different kinds of things that local communities are doing across the UK, where they're coming together creating and owning different kinds of assets. And so that could be, you know, like a community-owned solar project, uh, a local food co-op, a community land trust. And what's so compelling about this is that the aims when the community owns it tend to be much broader than just carbon emissions. You know, there's a lot more around how can we give back to the community? How can we improve the resilience of the local area? You know, in some cases, how can we address uh, poverty or fuel poverty? How do we have, how do we benefit from having more control? And um, I think it's just a super exciting space to be in. I think it's a really important part of the bigger goal of getting to net zero when we focus more than just on emissions. And for me, this initiative just brings it to life. Read the report by all means, but listen to what people are actually living and breathing it. 
are doing it. And then you kind of realize the, the wow factor around this kind of approach. So we probably should listen to the people who are living and breathing it. And I think that's a good moment to introduce our guests. So thanks, Rick, for giving us that context. And it's fantastic to be joined in the studio. We haven't had to go anywhere this time, so no walking was involved. Um, We have Jenny Barlow, who's an estate manager for the Taras Valley Nature Reserve, which was established following the historic community land buyout in Langholm. Jenny has a background in environmental projects, land management, community development and sustainability. Jenny, huge welcome to Copy This and thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. And um, like Rick said, the last time I saw Rick, we were in an absolute blizzard. So it's quite nice to be inside. (laughs) It's quite nice to be inside now from the comfort of the office on Zoom. I'm not going to lie. So it's lovely to be here. (laughs) Warm and dry in our virtual studio. Exactly. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you're hugely welcome. And and I'm delighted to welcome our second guest, Mari Telford-Jomay who's on the Taras Valley Nature Reserve Executive Group. But Mari grew up in Langholm and after moving away and coming back in in the 2000s, was part of that community buyout in 2020. So welcome, Mari, and lovely to have you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to chatting to you and hearing what you think or thought of Taras Valley too, Rick, and uh, chatting to Jenny as well, of course. Well, Well, Jenny, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Taras Valley and the initiative and how it all started and and paint a picture perhaps for our listeners who might not have been lucky enough to go there, um, gales or no gales. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can maybe set the context for just how we got here and then I'll talk maybe a little bit about Taras Valley itself. So um, Langham Initiative. So I started working for the Langham Initiative just um, back in July. So and have just moved to Langham. So very very sort of quite a new Langham resident. Um, But the the Langham Initiative was set up as a community development trust 25 years ago. So it's one of um, South of Scotland's oldest community development trusts, or one of the oldest. And it was set up to deal with or to help regenerate um, the community of Langham after a lot of economic heartache following the sort of decline of the traditional textile industries in Langham, which it was, you know, renowned for um, world famous textiles were sort of coming out of Langham and then it gradually mm. declined. And obviously there was, you know, there's quite a big fallout from that. So that, that's where the Langham initiative come from. And historically they've done a lot of environmental projects, lots of social projects and um, real pillar in the community here. Um, and to be honest, land ownership I'd, was not something that had been on the on the cards, really. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'm Mary will be able to expand on this one later on. But um, but yeah, it hadn't been something that had been considered before. Um, and I mean, we can talk a bit more about the community buyout in a bit more detail. But the headline was that the the land came up for sale absolute shock in the community it has a really deep cultural value with the with the um the town of langham um, there's a lot of cultural heritage tied to the land and it was a real shock when it was announced that it was going to come up for sale um, and actually mary you were working at the paper at the time weren't you when it yes. came up for sale so i don't know if you wanted to add anything there before i talk about the yeah, um, we we uh, set up an organisation to take on the local newspaper back in 2017 because the Cumbrian newspaper group were going to get rid of it. So we set up a community-owned company to take uh, that on. And actually, there's so many community organisations in Langham that manage and deliver services. Mm-hmm. So we, we started that. But anyway, in I think it was 2019, wasn't it, initially, mm-hmm. that the Baclou 
out of the blue made a decision to, and announced that decision to sell the Taras Valley, the, the Langham Moor, as they had called it. I mean, I don't think anybody local ever called it Langham Moor, but somehow it's been <laughs> branded as Langham Moor for a project, the Langham project, which was looking at whether or not you could keep raptors on the moor by feeding them and, and still restore a grouse moor. And after many years of this multi-agency project, like, uh, the decision was that actually it just wasn't viable to restore the grouse moor. So I'm not sure. There are probably a number of reasons or factors that came into Baclou's decision, but their decision and their announcement of that came completely out of the blue. Mm. And in fact, the paper had gone to bed that day. We had sent it off when this announcement came in. So we quickly had to put a news flash together and, I think I stayed in the office till eight o'clock. We had a pretty rubbish printer, to be honest. We had to print <laughs> all of these copies of this newsflash so people could pick it up in the paper shop the next day. So it was completely out of the blue for everybody concerned that they would sell this land. I mean, it's quite a recent thing for them to sell any land. Can I ask you, for those of us who don't know, a couple of things. I mean, A, whereabouts in Scotland is it? And B, who who were the landowners? Was this a, a private landowner? Um, Baclue, Baclue Estates are, were the landowner here. And, you know, they owned virtually everything around Langham. Um, they're one of the biggest landowners in Britain, really. So big, big landowner. Most of the farms around here are tenanted, they're tenant farmers of Baclou. And I think they had dominated things, you know, land use for a long time. The land that we bought was never sold before. So okay. Baclou, the Duke of Baclou would have been, you know, his ancestors would have been given it by the king, probably, I don't know, in the, I don't know whether it was the 17th century. And we know from, you know, studies that have been done that these landowners in Scotland registered the land as their own. So it had never been sold before ever. Um, and we're we're really close to the border between Scotland and England. We're only Langham's ten miles north of the border, so, so twenty two miles north of Carlisle. So we border with Cumbria uh, on the south side, and we're um, I mean the, the the south end of the estate is literally mile you know maybe five miles I think Jenny probably mm-hmm. from the Scottish English border. So that's where we are. And was this described um, as the impossible dream? because of the just the scale of, of the land purchase? I mean, we're not talking about a small plot of no. land. I think there's been a lot of community land buyouts, probably you're aware, in the north of Scotland, in the west, the, the Western Isles and the north of Scotland. Um, but there hadn't been any land uh, buyouts of this size in, in the south of Scotland at all. So this was a kind of pioneering thing, really, for mm. the south of Scotland. There's also the amount of, you know, the, the value that was put on the land that we had to raise. And, of course, then we ran into COVID. So it, it certainly seemed a very impossible dream. I don't even think I believed that it could happen, to be honest with you. <laughs> I was just going to say, how much was the land? And, and and if they hadn't sold it to you, who would they have sold it to? I mean, would it have gone for commercial development? So the, the land was put up um, at £6.8 million pounds for um, 
so the Terrace Valley estate in Langham Moor was put up um, as a big land parcel. So it was a huge amount of money, a huge undertaking for the community to even to start to look at buying this land. Um, so it was over 10, well, the, the whole moorland went up for sale, uh, but the parcel the community were interested in was a 10,500 acre parcel of land. So it covered the whole terrace water. So the headlands of the terrace water, um, catch, top of the river catchment, goes right down through open moorland, quite dramatic upland landscape, um, right down into ancient woodlands, and it wraps around the town of Langham. So it's a very iconic landscape for Langham. Um, you know, it, it, a deep, deep link with people who live here in the land. So I think the impossible dream as well was the fact, well, not just the cost of it and the fact that the community hadn't even, you know, that they hadn't really embarked on this, the idea of land ownership. Um, but it was also about, I think, the the thing that drove it and the, maybe, from, you know, I, Mary was, I, I'm kind of speaking from somebody who's just come to it quite new, but I think it was the risk of what might be taken away. Um, you know, the and, and what might happen if somebody, who bought it wasn't sympathetic to the the links that the community have got with the land so there's a lot of commercial forestry happening up here sort of huge monocultures of Sitka spruce um wind farms that kind of thing so obviously we need renewable energy but it's just um you know the the, the way that it's done and the designs and that kind of thing and the siting of them so there was a lot of worry about what would happen to that land and i think that was the driver um and but mm -hmm. there was also yeah. a lot of passion for the wildlife yeah. i mean yes exactly you know yeah. there's a substantial part of the the land is designated as a triple si that's a site mm -hmm. of special scientific interest because of a, 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 a special protection area, because of the hen harriers that nest mm -hmm. there annually, is probably one of the few places in Britain that you can sit in your car on a road <laughs> and watch hen harriers doing a, a food pass during the breeding season or watch short-eared owls or um, merlins. You know, we have these all of these birds of prey nesting on the land and for quite a number of people here who are very keen ornithologists, there's a real passion for that land. They grew up watching, there was you know, a man in the town who was a sort of mentor in terms of ornithology to two or three people here who work as the sort of volunteer as part of the raptor uh, group during the breeding season. They're up there every day making sure that these nests are not predated by, by humans. So there's a lot of passion for the wildlife and these big open spaces. Mm. But some of the land is also, I mean, it's kind of been traditionally used as picnic places and river swimming. And, you know, I hate to call it wild swimming because we've always swum in the rivers here. So, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's a kind of favourite spot. It's a lovely spot. How did you get people on board initially? Because I would think for some people, the scale of the ambition, the amount of money that you wanted to raise is so far-fetched seemingly mm -hmm. that people would just disconnect and go that's impossible literally so, so how did you manage to rally people around such an ambitious goal um i think well initially um although it wasn't a community land buyout using the community land legislation that the scottish government have in place and the reason for that was because the commu a community organisation has to put a marker down that they want to buy something before it even comes on the market. 
But Baclou asked that we try to demonstrate that there was enough community interest in, in purchase, in you know, buying the land. And a petition was put in place really quickly. And um, I think it was signed by over 800 people, uh, which is quite a substantial proportion of the, the population, because Langham is a population of about 2,300, 400 people. And then in the wider area, we're maybe talking about, you know, three to 4,000 people in total. So it was quite a substantial number of the population that signed the petition. So that was the first step, really. I think keeping keeping it in in the press, keep it well, of course, having a community on newspaper may have helped a little bit, <laughs> but we also had uh, um, a very, very good press officer volunteer to support the work that we did. Jenny, yeah. do you want to say a little bit about yeah. him? Oh, Richard's brilliant. So yeah, Richard helped us a lot with the sort of comms and, you know, the forward planning of a campaign and that kind of thing. It was all, uh, you know, it's very been very new to everybody, I think, um, and embarking on something so big and so high value. Um, but I think what, looking back on it, I think it was very much a sort of a meeting of minds and, and the right people being in the right place at the right time Definitely. and the story. And I think that's the thing that, almost caught fire it really you know just started from that little spark of people coming together saying well actually let's do this let's just give this a go let's what's the worst that can happen mm-hmm. um and i think the idea that you know in in a, in the middle of lockdown and when we're bombarded with stories about climate emergency natural world collapsing you know all these negative stories actually something like this just sparked the imaginations and the uh, passion in so many people. And I think it went so far beyond Langham and it went into national, international press because of that story that it was hope at a very dark time. You know, we were just hitting in the middle of the worst, you know, huge pandemic loss, you know, very, very dark time. Um, And this was something that you can tangibly make a difference with. And I think it was that kind of thing of actually a lot of the time when you read the news, you don't feel like you've got any sort of, control or, or power over anything and you, you it's hard to influence something that's so big as climate change or extinction mm-hmm. and actually this mm-hmm. was something where people could tangibly make a difference and actually mm-hmm. uh, affect something even if they're but, in Australia there were and I think yeah. that that story of hope was something that just catalyzed and it really did just go from such a little spark in Langham and it just it went yeah. like wildfire and the landowner Baclou were also yeah. willing to give us the time uh, yeah. uh to to do that and to try to raise the money mm. um but you know we had we did have you know a lot of coverage we had the Guardian here mm. we had Financial Times, we had, you know, mm. TV coverage. We had a lot of that coverage. helped a lot. It really so, helped a lot to get that message far and wide. Mm-hmm. And is that what helped you raise the money? Because obviously with the population, the size you've been describing, you know, somewhere near the, between four and 6,000 people, there's no way you're going to raise, <laughs> however generous people are, six plus million pounds. So, so was it because you had that big publicity campaign that you had donors from all over the world or did you get any of the money from from other sources we have to maybe say that kevin cumming who was yes, the project was manager for he was the project manager for the wild estil project which was a kind of ecotourism development project and he probably i don't know who kevin spoke to but the networks widened and widened and he was advised on people 
what he called high net worth individuals that he could talk to that might be interested in putting money forward. He, um, you know, he, he spoke to so many NGOs, you know, like um, the John Muir Trust, who eventually poached him, actually. And, um, you know, organisations like the Woodland Trust and... So you know that the, and and the, we had we got a million pounds grant from the Scottish Land Fund. Of course, we have that fund in Scotland mm-hmm. for community land buyouts, and the maximum grant is a million. They can give exceptionally more than that, but they they that was all they could offer us at that point. So we were lucky to get that million from them. We also had, alongside all the private and public grants we were applying for, so there was a, a wide range of different funders yeah. that came forward from sort of private family trusts, um, mm-hmm. charitable organisations, and obviously the public funds like South of Scotland Enterprise and Scottish Land yeah. Fund. Yeah. We also had a public crowd funder as well. So that um, had a target on that of um, 200, I think it was about, it raised 200,000 in the end with, about 4,000 people donated on that. That was really good because although there was all of these big grant-giving grant, grant giving organisations that were, were helping to boost that, that number and get it get into the millions, that was a real way of seeing the public support and how far that support was coming from. And actually it wasn't whether you give 50,000 or five pounds, you were helping to bring you know make something like this happen and that was a really nice way of people being able to you know donate what they could and help it happen we even had a little primary school in Glasgow Mm -hmm. who um they did a sponsored I'm not sure whether it was what was it a walk or a jump yeah I think it was a walk yeah and and they raised (laughs) I think it was between was it either two or four hundred pounds they're they're a very sort of eco-friendly school a tiny primary school in Glasgow amazing (laughs) And they gave us that money. Yeah. And, you know, that was so touching, really, that they were following our story, you know. So so they still have to come and visit us at some point. Yeah, they do. You're listening to Copy This, a podcast about working together on big thinking local climate action. But yeah, I think that really brings to life how this kind of a story just captures people's imagination like you were saying. And I'm wondering how, you know, there must have been a number of partnerships uh, and organisations that got behind you, some that you were hoping for, some that were unexpected. You know, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the people that actually rallied around uh, this project? I think for something this ambitious, the partnerships, no matter what form they take, absolutely crucial to doing anything like this because there's you know the networks that Mary mentioned you know those networks and even if it you know knowledge resources all those things um, and just bringing together people that can help make things happen and bringing together those like minds is something that we couldn't have done you know that those partnerships it couldn't have been done without them and so uh, for example, we've got a really good partnership now because of the buyout with the Woodland Trust. So they're helping support all our woodland creation activity that we've got access mm-hmm. to all of their expertise around ancient woodlands, forestry, you know, so that again is brilliant. And then we've also got, you know, through lots of different funders who have supported the buyout. So for example, John Muir Trust, Esme Fairburn, uh, South of Scotland Enterprise, through that funding, we've also got 
access and and you know there's a lot of expertise from staff um that ha- are helping us pretty much every day with just the the daily operations and and helping us to sort of find our feet as community landowners so i think that diversity uh, of community land scotland are another one it isn't just environmental but it actually brings in that economic um and the social side of things as well so i think the partnerships is recognizing that you can't have all the skills in one team Mm -hmm. and also bringing in that fresh perspective and I think that really helps because if the more different perspectives are brought in you actually get such a diversity of different ideas and I think that's and and in in partnership with that obviously the community are, are at the heart of what we're doing so one of the things that we've been since the team came into place in July we've had a really extensive uh program of community engagement with just the new nature reserve team that's in place mm-hmm. and that's been really helpful because a lot of us are new to Langham we've moved here for the for the jobs and actually starting to just get that experience with the community and understand how they see things how they perceive things what their priorities are what things what is going to make a difference for them um, and I think that sort of collaborative work and we'll we'll you know be a thread throughout everything we do yeah, uh, but that again brings that fresh perspective of something you know it brings a different perspective to what we're doing so I think that's, we've, you know, we've been really fortunate in getting the funding that we did to employ the staff because we now have four members of staff and a finance person in place and we managed to get funding for um, a sort of education person uh, who also recruits and supports the volunteers from a Dumfries and Galloway um, tr- trust that provides money for young people's projects, the Hollywood Trust, as well as from a local wind farm community benefit fund. Um, and we've managed, to, you know, in the Sense of Scotland uh, Enterprise, which was a new organisation, really, just as we were starting, they provided money for a development officer who is looking at the commercial aspects of the project or the the work so that the that going forward we can can continue to sustain the work and then um an anonymous donor i don't think i can say who it was but um provided money for a three-year digital project so that we could record the changes that would take place on the land over a three-year period using video, using sat-tagged images, all of that kind of stuff. So um, Stuart is fairly new in post, but I think we've got a fantastic team now and uh, all very enthusiastic and all bringing different skills and experience and background to the team. Yeah, it sounds the most amazing collaborative community regenerative project, but, but you've got this beautiful bit of land and Jenny, you described it so eloquently, you know, kind of rolling down and wrapping around the community. What, what kinds of things are happening in that space? I mean, obviously you're not going for heavy monoculture planting are you doing some rewilding are you you you're working with will and trust are you planting trees what kind of habitats are you creating that are there for both the natural world and also the community so i suppose in terms of the the natural sort of ecosystem side of things and we've already got a very it's a very already quite a rich habitat although it has had obviously 
years of sort of modification, well, decades, probably hundreds of years, actually, of sort of alteration by humans. So I suppose there is an element of there's quite a lot of restoration still to be done. And um, so there's, for example, on the moorland, we've got lots of drains and ditches where it's been historically drained, all the blanket bog, which we know now, the peatlands are so good for sort of capturing carbon from the atmosphere, but not, not when they're all drained and sort of drying out. So, you know, there's lots of projects like that. Um, and woodland we've got lots of river habitat as well so we've got a very rich sort of mosaic of habitats already and I think what we're trying to work out is sort of at the moment we want to follow probably quite a low intervention approach but obviously recognizing that it's going to need that human intervention to get get us to a restored habitat and that will take a very long time and it's a sort of I think the perspective on it it needs to be a sort of long-term vision for the recovery of the landscape but we're starting to look at where we, trees need to be planted or where can we naturally encourage trees to grow. Mm. We've already got on the moorland, um, because of the historic project that Mary mentioned earlier, we've got a lot of trees already regenerating because the um, grazing pressure has been reduced. So it's um, it is literally phenomenal to go on there and just see nature already starting to re-establish itself. And it, it is just there's a there's a point on the reserve where there's so we've also got six properties on the reserve as well and there's a cottage right in the center of the reserve called Kronk's Bank and you can stand there and look right up the valley which is all now in community ownership and you can just see all these little saplings just gradually sort of working their way back up the hills from the ancient woodland in the bottom of the valley and it's just very special to see it so I think what we want to do is encourage natural processes wherever we can but we also need to recognize that we will have to intervene and and you know catalyze them and catalyze that restoration um and obviously um a core of what we're doing is uh, and, and mary touched on it earlier about the just how how sort of precious the wildlife is locally and i think that's something that under community ownership and we've talked a little bit earlier about um sort of economic decline actually having such a huge amazing natural asset in community ownership means that we can start to look at projects like ecotourism and um, glamping hiking trails and encouraging more people to come visit here so it isn't just about you know the uh, restoration of the natural world but it's also all the benefits that that brings to people and all the benefits that brings to the community and also that other people can come here and experience the beauty of the place and and you know mm. so and everybody definitely should come and visit because it is so beautiful <laughs> oh, I, I definitely i definitely second that yeah. uh, it, it was breathtaking <laughs> um, i think there will be you know several people listening uh, in their local communities thinking mm-hmm. you know what can i take away from from this you know we are not going to be necessarily as ambitious as you and want to buy thousands of acres, but nonetheless, we want to do something similar. Do you have any thoughts or, or learnings that you could pass on? I think get together with like-minded individuals and they might not be the usual suspects. Some people just don't want to get involved. I kind of got the feeling that some people didn't really want to stick their neck out actually. And, you know, but I think also network with those organizations that we've touched on already that I think are, you know, are willing to lend support or offer funding or um, give you information and advice or whatever. I think that's really important. And they might not be just on your doorstep, but, you know, I, I do think we need to 
even in the south of Scotland, I was talking to the manager of the Southern Midlands Partnership recently and just saying to him, look, we need a network of people who are doing these kinds of projects on the south of Scotland. He's a former colleague of mine, so I was kind of saying, get on with it. We need this, <laughs> you know, because I really think that networks are so important for learning, for moral support. Um, it's very hard if you're working, you know, these staff have come to Langham, they're new to Langham, they don't really know all the networks that exist across the south of Scotland, although Stuart Mikes, he did work here before, but... I think it's that networking, mm. uh, reaching out, um, talking to people, um, learning along the way. Um, I think yeah, that's yeah. the main. And I think this this story, probably, you know, that what we've done here illustrates, and and on there's so many other examples that were highlighted on the COP26 walk. That actually, when you have a meeting of minds and a group of people come together against a, you know, towards a, a shared goal, it is quite amazing what can be achieved and actually at the start you might not think that it's going to happen but when you get enough people behind something Mm -hmm. then you can make amazing things happen and I think that's the that's the thing that to focus on rather than looking at and thinking oh well what's the point Mm -hmm. there is no point of even looking at that and I think when we're looking at climate change and uh, you know all the social issues and environmental issues we're facing at the moment that's the kind of attitude we have to have I think yeah, just yeah. to being really hopeful and positive and bringing people together yeah, and actually yeah. that that catalyzes something that you might you would never have been able to plan for and I think probably um it would be worth saying that I suppose in Scotland it, the la- there has been a lot of reform in terms of land ownership which has made put those tools in place for communities to be able to purchase land that maybe might not be in place in other in other areas have made funds available and that kind of thing but I've, I've worked in other places in England where there's been community asset transfers and some amazing examples of community ownership not just land but assets so I think it is like Mary said it's, it's I suppose it's not being scared to go and approach sort of different organisations organizations and put ideas forward for those mm-hmm. kind of things and networks mm-hmm. to bring people together and and yeah. goes without saying sharing the message on social medias you know that that goes without saying <laughs> being brave I think being brave, you know, what, what, what I'm hearing from both of you mm-hmm. you know it, it is incredible sort of you know willingness to to take risks to be brave to push you know push boundaries and yeah. and Murray you know the place you grew up where you kind of you know picnicked by the river and and swam and you've come back to you know mm-hmm. it, it just that that passion for mm-hmm. your for your landscape for the place yes. that you live and and not being deterred even if it seems like an incredibly huge obstacle I mean you referred to it as the kind of impossible dream but 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 you know you've made it happen in a way that just yes. sounds absolutely <laughs> incredible and I'm packing my bag now. As we say, <laughs> my boots are on. I'm ready to go. I want to hang out and look at those raptors. Yeah, I, I mean, I do it for my father. I do it for Tom, who was the inspiration for so many of these um, ornithologists that, you know, I spent the spring of 2020 and under lockdown sitting up on the hill at a social distance, of course. You know, watching <laughs> these birds, it was the most fantastic birding year um 2020 but you know what the weather was like it was dry it was it was amazing so um I do it for all of these people I think it's just great and for the next generations to come you know I think it's something um a legacy hopefully for 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 this community and others and people like yourselves to come and visit 
And I suppose, we, I suppose we're not quite finished because we still haven't actually completed our no. entire land purchase. So we, no. I suppose we couldn't be here without dropping that one in. No. Um, <laughs> so you're rattling that tin, are you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, so, but Rick, yeah. I mean, I say this kind of epitomises what you're trying to do at Carbon Copy, doesn't it? This is the idea of communities who can do things for themselves together in those networks and then take that learning and share it elsewhere so replicate mm. the things and and no two projects would ever be the same would they but but from your perspective as an organization an extraordinary example of how you could really make this work and really get it right i think so and also what comes across really really strongly is that local can have a really big impact mm-hmm. you know sometimes people think that local means small uh, but mm-hmm. very often it's just the opposite And starting local gets all these people together, gets these organizations behind it. And, you know, they were talking about a spark that really ignites something that's huge. Mm. And and this, you you feel the passion. Uh, Mm. You've seen how far they've come. You know, many people would think that buying 5,000 acres is already gargantuan, but no, they want to do it all over again. I mean, you know, one thing leads to another. You know, we could talk for ages, but unfortunately we've come to time I'd like to thank Jenny and Murray. I mean, fantastic. And, and you know, good luck, both of you, on the oh, next chapter you. of your story. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having us. Yeah. Um, it's and, just been a delight. It really, really has. And I have to say that, you know, everybody listening to this will be completely inspired. And thank goodness you're doing ecotourism because you're going to be overrun. You know, <laughs> you know, our producer's already got his binoculars out. He can't wait. So, uh, yeah, so yeah. yeah. But, but what a what a fabulous, uh, inspirational story. And, and just that idea that it's something that's gone across generations, you know, mm-hmm. reaching back, as you said, Murray, into the past mm-hmm. and reaching forward into the mm-hmm. generations yet to come. Truly inspirational, a really fabulous, fabulous project. And what a great um, example to start our podcast series with, Rick. Yeah. And um, next time for our next episode, uh, we are off to Hull, uh, one of the places in the UK that's uh, at risk or most at risk from extreme flood events mm-hmm. to hear the amazing story that how that city and its people have you know, come together in response. So thanks for listening. Yep. Thanks for listening and huge thank you to our guests and goodbye. Bye. (laughs) For more information about today's episode, check out carboncopy.eco forward slash copy this. Join in the conversation by following us on Twitter and using the hashtag copy this pod. Until next time. Mm